Amen. Be seated. Take your Bible, turn to John chapter 13. John 13. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question just to think about for a moment. What would you do if you had 24 hours left to live? What would you do? Would you go do your favorite hobby activity? Uh, Would you go eat your favorite restaurant, your favorite meal? Would you spend time with family, loved ones? Uh, as I thought about this question, the great philosopher Tim McGraw came to mind, who once said, if he was in this situation, had 24 hours left to live, or a short time left to live, he said he would go skydiving, or Rocky Mountain climbing, or 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. But then he said he would love deeper, speak sweeter, and give forgiveness that he had been denying. Well, think about that for a moment. What would you do? 24 hours left to live. I've asked a couple people that this week, and the two different people I asked both said I would sit down and say all I wanted to say to the people that mean the most to me. That's exactly what Jesus does in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And these next five chapters which for us will be several months, Jesus only has 24 hours before the cross. And in those times, look at what he does. He, he basically shuts down his public ministry and moves into private, a, to a private meeting with his disciples, the ones he loves the most, the, one he's, the ones he's been with through his three years of ministry, and he shares incredible teachings and even by his own examples, Things they must need to know. And as we read this text, we're going to begin this, again, this, I think, just amazing journey through chapter 13 through 17 of all that Christ said to the ones he loved the most with just 24 hours left. If you found John 13, find verse 1. We'll read through verse 17. If you're there, say word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world and unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, 
If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also wash my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not to say, not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, You are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Let's break down this passage of Scripture, and I, I know, I trust that God's going to give us some things that are going to help us and inspire us and encourage us uh, and edify us this morning. First, as I look at the very first verse, there's so much there. It gives us the timing of this. This is at the Passover celebration or just before the Passover celebration. And so we know this is that very important annual celebration that the Jews had. And they would make their journey toward Jerusalem and they would celebrate. And the, the thing that I like about this and what stands out to me is that we know the Passover celebrates what God did in Exodus when they took the spotless lamb, sacrificed it, put the blood over their doorposts, and the blood of the spotless lamb saved the people, right? But the thing about this Passover is what the first Passover was meant to show actually happens here, right? Because another spotless lamb, the spotless lamb of God, comes and gives his life, pours out his blood for our sin. It's a very special time in Israel, even though many of these people obviously don't know this yet, but this Passover is, is special. I see also in verse 1 an urgency. It says that Jesus knew his hour had come to depart from the world and go back to the Father. Again, Jesus knew, and we said this a couple weeks ago as well. Throughout our study of John, there's been multiple times where Jesus said, it, or John said it was not yet his time. It was not yet his hour. But now that we've gotten to this part of the book, you can see it says he knew it was about his time. It was his hour. There's urgency here. And again, I think we take to heart, obviously, all of Scripture, everything Christ says. But how much more urgent are these words, knowing he's got 24 hours left with these men? But then what I want you to really see is the last part of verse 1. And this could be an entire sermon. We could meditate just on this for a while. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus loves his own with a particular and a permanent love. Let's take those one at a time. First, notice the particular love that God, that Christ, has for his people. Now in this text, as you read that, who is he speaking about specifically there? We know it's the disciples, right? He loved his own. Those disciples that he had called, that followed him, that's who it's talking about. And then uh, I kind of jumped ahead to John 17, where Jesus prayed and said, he said, I'm praying for them. He said, I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. Isn't that interesting in John 17, 9? We'll get there in a few months, but 
Jesus said there, I'm not praying for the world. Why wasn't he praying for the world? He said, I'm praying for mine, Father, the one you've given me. And John 17 tells us as well, that goes for all of us who would one day follow Christ. Now, we know there's a sense in which God loves all of his creation, but there is certainly a sense in the Bible of God's particular love for his people. We see it time and time again. Here's a good example for you. I love you guys. I love my church family, right? But I love my wife more, right? Same for you, right? You love other people. Your family, typically, it's your family. You love more. You just That's who we love, right? And so in a sense, God can love everyone and does pour out his love in a general sense on everyone, but in a very specific way, he loves his own. Someone said that Jesus has done some things for all men, but he has done all things for some men. I like that. Jesus has done some things for all men, but he has done all things for some men. Why were these disciples particularly, why were they his? He called them, he chose them, he loved them, he shared with them, he taught them, he demonstrated things for them. Time and again, he revealed to them that they were his. Now, this is important in our context because as Jesus is here with these guys, and as we just read, John said, he's with his own, he loves them. And you can jot this down in Mark 14, in verse 50. That's, the, that's when Jesus is arrested, a few hours from where we are now. And John 14, 50 says this about the ones that Jesus loves the most, or love dearly. It says, they all left him and fled. In just a couple of hours, these men are going to abandon Christ in what we can say it was probably his greatest hour of, not that he has need, but you see what I mean? His greatest uh, obstacle at the, up until this point. Yet, he loves them. Kind of reminds me of us. What's the old, there's an old hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And though we might, at times, feel like we might abandon our Lord, or we might turn away from him and sin, if we are truly in Christ, we still are, right? And so that's what the next thing is. It's not only a particular love, it's a permanent love. He loved them to the end, and we can know that for all whom Christ died for, those whom he saves, his love for us will never change. Did you realize that today? No matter what you do, you cannot make God love you more or less. His love does not change. Now, we can please him more or less by our actions, I believe, but his love doesn't change. When we fail, when we struggle, when we feel worthless or helpless, if we are in Christ, we remain in Christ. Those whom he saves, he loves forever. Or as J.C. Rowell put it, those whom he loves at first, he loves at last. Or as Jesus said in John six thirty seven, anyone that comes to me, I will never cast him out. His love for us is particular, which, let me tell you, that should excite us today, that God loves us. And His love for us is permanent. It should excite us that He will never stop loving us. Many of you, some of us, have experienced life situations where someone you loved stopped loving you. We never, we'll never experience that with our God. Never. 
So in verse 2, and I won't spend much time here, but we move on to verse 2, and, and it talks about Judas Iscariot and how the devil has put it into his heart to betray the Lord. And the reason I won't spend much time here is because um, this will be more of with next week. If you look down at verse 18 and following, you'll see that we're going to talk more about Judas next week. Um, and, I, and I've been wondering the question, I have the question like, why was Judas even there? You know, if he's not a true follower of Christ, why is he even there? But think about it. God and Christ demonstrated his general love for people by simply allowing Judas to be a part of all this stuff. Imagine Judas for three years heard the word, saw what Christ did, was a part of that group. All the while, a sinner who would reject Christ. But Christ allowed him to be there. And this, to me, is just a, a clear example of the depravity of man. That you could be this close to Christ and yet not know Christ. We're going to see later in this text, Jesus is going to look at him and say, whatever you intend to do, just do it. As it kind of ramps up in this chapter. Judas was untouched, though he had seen all that Christ had done. He was touched, just not by Christ. What do you think about Judas when you look at him? Or how do you think the disciples looked at him? Do you think he fooled the other disciples? There's a good question for Wednesday night. Do you think he fooled the other disciples? Do you think he fooled the crowds around that saw him walking around with Jesus? I kind of think he probably did. And the, the illustration here or the application here is that he is an example. He is a warning. And you can write this down. A professing believer can be a false believer. A professing believer in Christ can also be a false believer in Christ. And over time... We can judge a tree by what? The fruit it bears. And Judas finally and ultimately proved by his fruit that though he might have professed Christ, he never truly was a Christian. So let's go to the main part of the text, and we'll talk more about Judas next week. The main part of the text here, um, as we go down to verse 3 and following, is Jesus actually doing the thing. And the thing is washing the disciples' feet. Um, and so I want to give you three thoughts on this question. Why did Jesus wash the disciples' feet? Was this necessary? Why did he do it? Was it just because they were dirty? Why did he do it? Let me give you three things. First, he did it to show humility. Christ Jesus washed his disciples' feet to display his humility. By the way, before we move on, how had he already displayed his humility when he entered the city? You remember that triumphal entry where he enters the city? Remember what he rode on? Very small donkey, not a big, strong horse, showing his humility. And so we've seen it more than once where Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, humbles himself and shows his people that. In verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that, again, uh, it's time for him to go back to God, verse 4, he rises from supper after they would finished eating. And notice this, he took off his clothes, basically, and girded up and began to pour water and to wash their feet. I read this story related to this text. If you like history, you might like this, that during the American Revolution, uh, this man in civilian clothes rode his horse 
by a small infantry, and the infantry was preparing, they were fixing a breach in a defensive wall or barrier. And as this man in civilian clothes rode by, he stopped and, and spoke to the leader. He could tell there was a leader there on another horse. He said, sir, he said, um, he said what's going on? What, 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 are you, what are you doing? Why aren't you helping these men who are trying to fix this, this breach? And the man said, sir, I'm a corporal. And the stranger just looked disappointed, and he mount, dismounted off his horse, and he went and he helped these men. These men were exhausted, fatigued. He helped them fix the breach in the wall. Then he walked back, jumped on his horse. He looked at the corporal and said this, Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this and you don't have enough men to get it done, go to your commander-in-chief and I will come and help you again. Who is that man? George Washington. This picture of the one who is great, the general, gets down and stoops down to help his people. In this text, we see a much greater example of any, than any president or general. As Jesus Christ removes his clothing, the outer clothing, and girds himself, what he is doing there is literally dressing like the lowliest servant in the house, like a slave. Because in these days, if you were rich, if you were wealthy, you might have some servants or slaves, and if someone came to visit your house, the lowest man on the totem pole, the lowest slave or servant, will be the one with the job of washing dirty feet. And by the way, didn't they walk almost everywhere? Didn't they wear sandals or bare feet? These are some dirty feet. It's part of their culture. And so if you were the slave or the servant, you would do it. Also, if you were not a wealthy family, guess who washed the visitor's feet? It was usually the baby of the family, the youngest. Are any of you the youngest of your family when you're growing up? Youngest of your siblings? Your job would have been to wash visitors' feet. Ugh. Jesus, in maybe his most surprising moment in the entire Gospel of John, I said maybe, humbles himself by appearing and acting like the lowliest servant or slave in the house. So he showed his humility. Let me show you a second thing, a second answer to the question, why did Jesus wash his disciples' feet? He did it to pre preview a spiritual cleansing. So in verse 5, it says, He poured the water and he began to wash their feet and wipe them with a the towel. Imagine this. Imagine Jesus going around the room. Then he comes to Simon Peter in verse 6. And Simon Peter says, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I'm doing now, you know, you don't understand, but you will later. Verse 8, Simon Peter says, you will never wash my feet. It's not the first time Simon Peter's spoken like this. He's pretty blunt, right? Outspoken. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And then what does extreme Simon Peter do? He goes to the other extreme, doesn't he? You know what, Lord? Wash everything. <laughs> give me a complete bath, head to toe. I want the, give me the works. And Jesus says, he is washed, he is not to save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you are clean, but not all. So we see here Peter's passionate protest. And when, Je when Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet, that word never is an emphatic never. It actually means not in all of eternity will you wash my feet. You will never wash my feet. Why would Peter say that? Well, 
Well, you know, we understand why. Because Jesus is Lord, right? And Peter says, no, I'm supposed to be serving you. I'm the servant, you're the Lord. This doesn't make sense. But Jesus, as he did so many times with so many different things, Jesus would flip it around and say, no, the one who's the greatest, the Lord, will stoop down and serve. Or as he said in Mark 10, in verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think Peter, as Peter watched Jesus go around, I think he got triggered. <laughs> That's a new word we use nowadays. He got triggered. What is he doing? Why is he washing their feet? But Jesus, as he did, would speak truth to Peter and say, this is what we're doing. I've never been a part of a foot washing service. Have any, um, some of you may have, I don't know, except for just washing my own. But um, I've been told that oftentimes the worst part is not the person washing, but it's actually having your feet washed. It's being the one sitting there with your feet. Just, it's like accepting that can be difficult. Accepting that, whatever that is, can be difficult. And so I think that's important just to bring out the fact of Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. I think there's not only humility in the washing the feet, but in allowing your feet to be washed. Just receiving that service from someone else. You know the hymn that says, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing flood? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? He washed their feet, but this was a preview of a spiritual cleansing that would come when he would give himself on the cross. But just as they needed to receive this foot washing in this situation, we must receive Christ, right? And that does require a, a God-given humility because anybody who's prideful, anybody who says, I'm still good, I'm not a sinner, I'm fine, they cannot receive Christ, right? Until Christ overcomes that and conquers that. And so there's something about this cleansing. Verse 10, Jesus here talks about once you've had a bath, all you really need to take care of is your feet. And that idea, again, is, I think, it, you know, for us maybe is this point of once we're saved, we're always saved. But sometimes our feet still get dirty every day. <laughs> Which is why we need to confess our sin and repent of our sin that's why we have a moment of confession in our services every Sunday. That's why we should all have that in our lives all the time. We know that when Christ saves us, he saves us once and for all. But we still need to repent and confess. Our sins are real, right? They still matter, but they are forgiven by the Lord. Why do you wash their feet? Number three, to give an example. To find verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and taken his garments, so he you know, dressed back up and was set down, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and, and you say right, you say well, because I am Master and Lord. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, and I think this is the key verse in the text to me, but if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. We don't serve God to gain salvation. We serve God because He's given us salvation. We also don't serve God by literally washing other people's feet. I personally don't think that that's something that's a you know something we have to do. I think there's two ordinances: Lord's Supper and baptism, and I think that's that's what the Bible teaches. So I don't think this text is to tell us you better do this to be saved, or you better do this because this is what's commanded. I think Jesus is simply saying to his disciples and to me and you, you need to be a servant to the people around you. As Jesus did it, we must do it. And so as we come to our conclusion here, I want you to consider, are you a servant? Some are better than others. I think it's usually wives and mothers and grandmothers who often can see a need in someone's life and can meet that need. I can think of just people in my life, whether family members or church members, who I can just imagine and see them being aware of needs and willingness to meet people's needs to serve people. But all of us who are Christians are called to serve others. In Galatians 5, listen to what Paul says in verses 13 through 15. He says, For you were called to freedom, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There is this calling, not only in the words of Christ in John 13, but in Paul's writings in the New Testament, for us as the church to serve. Look at verses 16 and 17. If you'll read those, you'll see there that there is a blessing for those who obey. Does this mean if I serve God really well, they might one day put a plaque up in the church with my name on it? Or maybe, you know what, they might build a statue of me out in front of the church. That'd be amazing. Just me and Brother Bob, two big statues up there. <laughs> one statue bigger than the other, but you know. That stuff, by the way, I better just keep going. That stuff makes me kind of queasy, by the way. Putting our names on stuff in the church. I don't know, it's just me, but like, like we don't do it. We don't serve God for a reward. We don't serve God so that our name gets up there or, or because we have more, get more money or fame or any of those things. What does it say in verse 17? If you know these things and if you do these things, it says, happy are you. And so what I see here is by serving God, what we get from it, besides the truth of knowing that we are serving our Father, is just joy. And that's why you as a Christian can go do something nice for someone else and never even tell a soul about it and know that you did the right thing and feel good. Because it is a blessing to do acts of humility. It's a joy to follow Christ. It's a joy to help others. So who can you invest in this week? Who can you invest in today? Uh, we should start at home, investing in our families. And that's not always the easiest thing to do, but we should do that. Be a servant in our own homes. We should invest in our church, right? 
by helping where you see things that may need to be done or giving of your time or your talents or your resources, just being, in, in, again, investing in your family, investing in your church, but even other people you know and you see, you can be a servant of Christ for people. Philippians 2, 5 says, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself and became obedient to God, even to death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see that Christ demonstrated humility, he demonstrated a spiritual cleansing, and he gave us an example to follow. And finally, in Luke 22, the disciples are bickering back and forth. Who's the greatest disciple? Is it Peter? John's like, might be me. James, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not a pretty good disciple. Andrew, like, hey, I take people to Jesus. I'm a good disciple. They're arguing about who's the greatest disciple. And Jesus, their Lord, says, let the greatest among you be the one who serves. And then he concluded by saying, I am among you as one who serves. May this be our motto. Whether it's at home, here in the church, wherever we go, can we say, I am among you as one who serves. Let's pray.